This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Roby Damlin and Ali Abu Awad. They are members of the Parent Circle Bereaved Families Forum. It's a network of Israelis and Palestinians who've lost loved ones on both sides of the crisis between their peoples. I spoke with them on November 14, 2006, at a restorative justice conference in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. This interview is included in our program, No More Taking Sides. Download the MP3 of that produced show at onbeing.org. That happened to me three weeks ago. What was that? In San Francisco. Oh. There's this extraordinary hip-hop singer called Michael Franti, very tall with dreadlocks. <laughs> I know. And he came to Israel, and he'd been to, um, to Iraq beforehand. And uh, he came to my house, and Nadwa was there, a Palestinian. Oh, the woman you traveled with before. A lot, mm-hmm. yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, he sat on the floor. You know, it was the middle of winter, and he arrived with no shoes, so of course I loved him immediately. <laughs> and um, he invited us to come to San Francisco. We came to San Francisco, and um, I, there were all these people. There was like 60,000 people in the Golden Gate Park. Mm. And we got on the stage, and of course, it's not the sort of music that I know anything about anyway, right. but I suddenly started to really like the music because it starts coming up through your legs you know, <laughs> when you're standing up on the stage, and I right. listen to the words. Right. Because half the time I can't actually understand what they're saying. Yeah, the words are poetry. Yes, and what Franti was singing about was so poignant and so strong. And then I said to Nadra, they're never going to listen to us. Hmm. You know, not a chance. I mean... They were all jumping up and down, you know, waving their arms and everything. And then he said to them uh, who we were. And they just all sat down, like 60,000 people sat down on the grass. Were they young, most of them? Young and old sort of ex-hippies and the weirdest looking people. You know, I thought I'd seen it all. But but I liked that (coughs) thing because it was so accepting one of the other. It doesn't matter what you did. I think if you'd arrived there with a carrot sticking out of your ear, nobody would have thought you strange, right. you know, and they right. just would have accepted you. So after he announced us, they all sat down and we spoke for quarter of an hour and it was totally amazing. Mm-hmm. And then I walked around, but I, you know, I got very upset because I saw that they had all these posters saying, kill Bush, do this. And it's the same thing, but in another way, it's also violent. Right. You know, and here they are talking about love and energy and all of that stuff. And it's the same message on the other side of the coin. Mm-hmm. It's very hard not to go down that path of, you know, being self-righteous. Right. And, and even if they're not actually are, firing I mean, are we weapons. recording this or well, can I just talk uh, away? Uh, are, are, we're probably not recording start yet. Start recording. I'm, okay. I am recording, but uh, okay. it hasn't counted yet. Do you need to get um, Ali's <laughs> levels? I wanna, I'd like to hear both of you say your name. I want to hear you say it so that I say it correctly. Well, my name is Ali Abawad. Okay. Is it enough? Yeah, it's enough. Okay. I can play it back. I just want to say it correctly when I have to say okay. it. And Robbie Damley. You say Robbie. Okay. Um, let me tell you a little bit about the audience for the show. We have about half a million listeners on public radio all over the country. We have a big audience in New York City. We're made in uh, Minnesota, and then we're all over from Portland, Oregon, to Miami and Atlanta and... St. Louis, and it's a public radio audience, which is um, very diverse. I mean, we have 
listeners who are 18 to 80, men and women, um, they tend to be a little, you know, on average, um, well-educated people, you know, better educated than the population at large. And they tend to be community leaders of all kinds. Um, so people who have influence in their, in their, in their world... Um, is this yeah. broadcast as uh, under the title of a religious program? Well, or? It, you know, public radio is not religious, and it's not a religious program. Because it's called something It's called of faith. Speaking of Faith. Okay. And I'm having to... Um, I mean, I say speaking of faith in the 21st century means speaking about life. And really what we do is take on subjects of importance in human life and in the world and ask some different questions of them. Um it's not religious programming, but it is trying to draw out, um, well, do a couple of things. You know, religion is in the news everywhere, and sometimes mm-hmm. try to take that apart. And, you know, sometimes the religion stories are actually not about religion. Um, and sometimes the religious questions that are raised by things that happen in the world are not the questions that get publicized. So we, we really try to say, what, what is the... You know, what are the sometimes not just what's the religion story, but what are the deep questions that are raised by this, and and how do our various traditions speak to them, and how do real people live with these traditions in real ways, and I mean I think of you know the, <laughs> Israel and 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 the, the Palestinian Israel Israeli crisis is a perfect example where people on the outside say well that's all about religion. But you know, how do you take that apart and um, and really? And so, what you know, I do want to talk about what that what your traditions mean to you and how you how you live with them. Maybe how they've changed for you. But but that's not. We're not just talking about that because really, I think um, we no, say. No, but is it a Sunday morning sort of? Program? Oh, it's on all different times. Um, oh, okay. We send it out to the system on Thursdays at noon. It's on in upstate New York on Thursday afternoon. It's on New York City Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. It's okay. on Atlanta Wednesday night. All right, I'm beginning mm-hmm. to understand. Yeah, so, so it's all over the place. And I also interview people who are not um, in any way traditionally religious, but who have, who have some wisdom to impart, who have something to say. And the tagline is, we say, public radio's conversation about religion, meaning, ethics, and ideas. It was. It's interesting that you bring this up because just before we came downstairs, I was watching something on the television about religion, and uh, they were talking about religion and state and how they feel about it. But right. the interesting thing was that there were only Christians mm-hmm. on the screen. I mean, I do know that this is a predominantly Christian country, mm-hmm. but uh, I would say that it might be a good idea to take into consideration right. Muslim, Jewish, well, you know, and other faith ideas if you're wanting to create something of tolerance. Yes. And just as a, well, an aside, I was just yeah. watching it and it became very clear to me how easy it is. Mm-hmm. You know, we had the same thing. We just came from England. You want to have a conversation? There's only I'm one game in town in England. I've lived there. I mean, it's only the church. Except, except it means very little to most people. No, no, but when we were in England now, because of the veil, you know, there's this oh, right, huge right, thing right, going right. on about the veil. Right. And so they kept asking us. And I said, look, you know, I mean... I'm not religious. I don't like symbols. I don't like flags. I think they separate us. Mm -hmm. And 
But I can only tell you that if you told me that I couldn't wear a Star of David, I'd go out and buy the biggest Star of David I could find Mm -hmm. in the marketplace. I would put diamonds and sequins on it and wear it prominently on my chest. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing is creating ethnic lagers. And the minute you do that, that's when you will force me to show you that I'm actually Jewish. I mean, why is it that so many people since the July bombings are starting to wear veils? Right. You know, and it's something that people must ask themselves, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Americans aren't very clear on the connect, the relationship between religion and identity. And, yes. and even they're not very introspective about how that works in our culture and not at all comprehending how it works in other cultures. And, you know, we do get into that. That's one, but, And yes. I would say um, we started this program in the summer of 2001, yeah. And, you know, I've had a, a very large number of Muslims on the program. We couldn't not do that because of the way the world has changed and there was such a need to shed light on that and to hear a diversity of voices. I mean, I'm really committed to showing a diversity of voices in the major traditions, in Christianity as well, um, and in Islam, um, because that's what people don't see. They only hear the loud voices and um, and the slogans. So, yeah, so we should probably talk, but... <laughs> We'll keep talking about some of this. Um, okay. I, I thought, this is how I thought it might go, and if it goes a different direction, that's fine, too. I thought I might speak with, um, with you individually just for a minute and just hear a little bit of your stories, and I know something, and we don't have to start at the beginning because I'll be able to set some of that up. But I just want to ask you a few questions. I thought I might start with you, Ropi, and then Ali, and then, and then I want us to have a three-way conversation. Um, Okay. Um, but so I, I. Why don't you start with Ali? Should I start with Ali? Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, mother. Oh, what? Yes. I don't know why. I just had you first on the because page. Because everybody always no, does do they that, start and with I just you? suddenly okay. felt like. All right. No. Then I'll start with you. Um, you know. So I read your. I've read your a little bit about your history, and it seems to me that your family's story is is a story of many Palestinians, that your family was forced off the land in 1948, that many of them were in refugee camps in Jordan, um, and you came back to a home saturated with politics. Is that, is that fair? Um, yeah. It was really uh, striking to think, just to read that you, as a child, you know, watched your mother be arrested many times. I just, I don't know what effect that has um, on a child. And then, you participated in the first intifada or were arrested twice. I mean, um, how, how much time did you actually spend in prison? And tell, tell me about that. About um, I spent uh, four years in the prison. The first time was in 1990. Uh, I spent three months. So I uh, read a lot about uh, the conflict, about Fatah, about the ideology of Fatah. Was your mother involved in Fatah? Yeah, she was um, one of the leaders okay. on the ground more than in the political level. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I grew up in this home, and mm-hmm. the relation with my mother is, was different. It's not a relation between a child and his mother. It's because she was very unique. And, you know, we live in Hebron, which is uh, the woman in Hebron. They are not that much free to be involved in the political movement. Hebron is such an evocative place biblically and in in the history of 
of your region. It's yeah, the, the religion and the society and many things is, uh, are different in Hebron. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, I uh, I grew up in that home, uh, and I saw my mother start being involved in the political cases. Actually, the first time that I uh, felt that was uh, in 1982. She went out um, to my brother. He was uh, studying as a pilot with Fatah Hmm. uh, out in Yugoslavia. And she went to Syria. She wanted to meet him. And by being in Syria, she knows people from Fatah and so... So when she came back, um, the Israeli government arrested her. And it was the beginning of her by being that much involved. And how old were you? I was 10 oh. years old. Oh. Actually, I um, I was waiting for her when she come from Jordan, through Jordan, because we have to go through Jordan. And I was waiting uh, for her uh, in the road at that day. With my young sister, she was uh, seven years old, and she didn't come back home. Hmm. We have been at night waiting and waiting. We didn't know what's happening. Then uh, my father came down to the road, and he told us, your mother is not coming back. She get arrested. Hmm. And I surprised, because for, for, for a child, I mean, Why? I couldn't understand. And uh, she was not involved in this before this trip to Syria. So I surprised. I took my uh, sister. My sister started crying. Not because she's in jail, but because she's not there. We we, we couldn't understand. (laughs) What does it mean? I mean, we couldn't. And uh, then we... We realized that they explained to us that she's um, in a prison for a good thing, not for a bad thing, mm. by, you know, by defending your, Palestine. Your family explained yes, it to you that my way. father and my brother. So we get it. And somehow we have to live with that. Then we went to visit her to the prison. And I saw her in uh, Al-Maskubiyya, which is a prison in Jerusalem for women. And I saw her there, and I was, I don't know, I start being angry. I start mm-hmm. being, I don't want to see the Israelis. And uh, we went back home after this visit, and I visited her just once. And uh, she told us she's okay, we have to be strong, we, she's, she'll go back soon, she'll not, you know. And uh, yeah, we went back home and um, after six months, they uh, released her. And she started being involved. We went to many festivals with her for um, Palestine in universities and so. And I started wearing uh, the kufiya. Hmm which is, uh, you know, uh, for Fatah. And we, until, and they they arrested her for the second time in 1985 for 20 days of investigation. And after this, 
she went out of the prison and um, uh, she continued being involved. We used to go to Amman with her. She used to 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 carry a message from the people to the leaders in Amman and many places. In Jordan. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she used to swallow um, the paper with with plastic the message to cross the bridge. And uh, I used to help her by preparing this. Uh, and uh, I was very afraid in the bridge with her, you know, with my sister, because we are we are young and we used to be afraid, you mm-hmm. know. But they used also in the bridge to stop her and to investigate her. But many times we succeed to cross. So I, I, I start being involved with this feeling that I'm doing something. And she's, she feel okay with that. Mm-hmm. And I wanted her to see me as as a person who is, you know, involved and uh, wanted her to be proud of me and so and so. Then the so the first intifada came and I start being in, in involved uh, deeply. But you were involved. I mean, the first intifada was not um, about heavy weapons. It started as more of a populist uprising and, and you weren't. You were there. Were just the images are of rock throwing and mm-hmm. yeah. The first intifada actually because of this that intifada shows the voice of the Palestinian more than anything else. The Palestinian wanted just to the the whole world to the world to hear their voice, mm-hmm. and because of that, uh, I think it was a very succeed thing by not having the violent throw women and so and so. And uh, after this, and because of this, I think we got the Oslo Agreement. Mm-hmm. I mean... Um, right, it made is the Israeli citizens across the board be more aware of Palestinians and their frustrations. Is that, I mean, that's right, isn't it? The uh, first intifada. What is it? Sorry? The first intifada, because it, it was this popular uprising that made Israelis also have become more aware and attentive to the frustrations among the Palestinians that led to that. They become what? More more aware. Just mm. But the thing is that really it made the whole world. It wasn't only right. okay. Israel. You know, if and you Israel also responded to that. In its context, mm-hmm. it's the first time the world realized that there was a Palestinian mm-hmm. nation. Mm-hmm. You know, up till then there was no recognition of that. Mm-hmm. But okay. I felt I felt that the Israelis didn't accept that because it was the first time for the Palestinian to have this kind of uh, revolution. I mean, we used to have this uh, relation with the Israelis, and in somehow, if I if I can say that in a quiet situation, we used to go and work in Israel, and so. And uh, the, the majority w- were not in involved that much as they became involved through the first intifada. So the Israelis didn't get that. Okay. And uh, w- the agreement, the Oslo agreement, it helps um, by by having a, a step in this direction, by giving this ac- uh, acceptable, making the Israelis accepting the Palestinian 
And what is damaging all of this is the second intifada. Mm-hmm. And were you involved in the second intifada also? No, no not anymore. Because, um, you know, after being uh, involved in the first intifada and um, after being in the prison, after they released us, then I I I wait, wait to see the, the real peace. And one of the conditions that they released us we have been around 4,000 prisoners who have been released through mm. the agreement. Through Oslo? Yeah. Uh-huh. And not all the prisoners. I mean, until now, we have a prisoners who are in the prison even before the first intifada. But, so we have been 300 of uh, 4,000. They put us in Jericho. And they didn't allow us to go back home because they said that we are dangerous and we are so and so. And from that moment, this agreement didn't touch me because I realized that it's not a real peace, mm-hmm. even in, in the personal situation. I couldn't go back home. I used to use uh, the identity of my brother, Yusuf, mm-hmm. and to cross the checkpoint and to go back home. And I used to be wanted mm-hmm. even without doing anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I still saw the checkpoint and the settlement became large and bigger than before. So where's the peace? I couldn't Mm -hmm. see this peace. In the other side, the the continuation of the violent, of the uh, suicide bombers and so, so the both nations couldn't have peace through the agreement. Right. Even the big change w- what uh, through this agreement because the most good thing in this agreement is considering each other, recognizing each other. This is the, the biggest step in this agreement. But uh, it didn't uh, done on the ground. Right, it was more government-to-government recognition than exactly. people-to-people. Because of this, the Second Intifada became more violent, more killing, with desperation, without mm-hmm. hope. So the people in the second intifada uh, had the weapon not because they have been sure that they, they are going to erase the other side, mm-hmm. I mean the both side, but because the desperation. Look at them today. Nobody is sure now that violence is leading for any solution. And there so is no winner. S- somewhere in all of this, your brother used to have died. Right. When how did when did that happen and how? It happened in the uh, early beginning of the second intifada. Uh, actually, I after I um, get my identity uh, and I left Jericho, I start trying to live normal, but I couldn't because I couldn't continue my study in the university, uh, and I have been wanted even after Jericho. And I didn't know why, you know. So um, there were no formal charges, or you hadn't committed any formal crimes. Um, you said you didn't know why. Yeah, I didn't know why because I have not been involved in oh. anything, you okay. know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think being a son of my mother, it's it is <laughs> it is explaining the case. So um, I decide to leave the country. I couldn't live normal. I couldn't dream. I couldn't plan for my future. I couldn't connect, you know, to the situation. 
because I'm missing in my thought and my feeling. Uh, I don't have a direction because even if I know the direction, I, I cannot hold in this direction because it's not my decision. So I left the country. I went to my brother in Sri Lanka. He used to work there, having a ticket airline office. I stayed there for three years. I went also to Jordan because the, um, I have many brothers and sisters in Jordan. Then I came back, uh, and the second intifada start, and uh, I have not been involved in this intifada. Uh, I didn't join it because I believe that uh, this intifada is has um, nowhere, you know, without any direction. Hmm. And it has been done politically because of the Oslo Agreement couldn't succeed. So the politicians want to run away from their duty by having this. Hmm. So anyway, shortly, um, I um, w- one day I was crossing to from my town to a village next to us. And an Israeli settler was crossing next to me because um, they used to drive in the middle of the West Bank, you know. He, and he was shooting the people through the window of his car. He shot somebody and he killed him. And he shot me hardly in my knee. And, um, you know, without any reason, <laughs> even if I didn't want to be involved, but it's not your decision. Uh, as long as you are living there, you cannot be far from the situation. Anyway, they sent us to Saudi Arabia for medical treatment, the Palestinian Authority, because the condition of the medical cases in Palestine is very bad. Okay. And um, after being there around a month, I mean, I, I, I left to Jordan first, then my brothers and my mother was with me in Jordan, and um, and this is the last time that I saw my brother. I still remember that I have been in the ambulance going to the airport, and he was crying there mm. because uh, he wanted to come with me, but my mother uh, told him no. She she wanted to be with me, and uh, I left there. And after being a month. I got a phone call <coughs> from my brother. <coughs> Sorry. I got a phone call from my brother, and he told me that uh, Yusuf, my older brother, he was 31 years old, has been stopped by an Israeli soldier in the entry of our village, and he shot him in his head, and he killed him. Uh, at that moment, you know, for me, Yusuf was was a friend, was a father. He was a mother <laughs> when my mother used to be in a prison. <laughs> he was everything for me. <laughs> and he used to take care especially about me. And uh, he used to be worried about me because I was a very troublemaker <laughs> in many cases. And... Um, even you using his identity when I have been in Jericho, 
I, 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 and sometimes I'm, uh, I used to drive with his license. And uh, the police stopped me and gave me, you know, punishment. So I <laughs> so used to, that. yeah, to cost yeah. him punishment without being uh, his fault. Mm. All of this, all of this relation, we used to, in the holiday of our school, we used to go to work together and we are young and, you know, we have been throwing stone together, we have been in danger together. We used to cook together. We used to clean our clothes. We it, it was it's a very special life with Yusuf. Mm. So at that moment, Yusuf for me was was another life, and I lost it. Mm. So, I mean, it's very hard for me to imagine that um, everything that your family had gone through and that you'd been through that you weren't quite hardened in a way when you I don't know when you heard about something like the bereaved family is it called the bereaved parents parents circle families forum okay parents circle families forum that I don't know I mean what was it in that that could cut through all of this and um, and so that you would engage again well after losing somebody and uh, especially for me, losing Yusuf, for me it is the and I mean Yusuf worth the whole world. So so so, how many people shall I kill? Even if I want to be involved again against the Israelis by having violent, even because of Yusuf, even if I don't believe with violent, maybe this switch by losing Yusuf could get me there again. Mm-hmm. But thinking about that, so how many Israelis shall I kill to feel better? Right. And if I kill somebody, what does it mean? Leading my people to freedom, returning back Yusuf, costing somebody the same pain that I got is making my pain more easy. And am I, am I allowed to kill somebody at all, even without being bereaved or being bereaved? I'm not allowed to kill somebody. Appreciate, appreciate the life. Appreciate the life of us and the life of others. And because of this, I couldn't accept this prize. And somehow I couldn't accept it. Mm-hmm. And Yusuf has not been involved. And he has been a victim, just a victim. But I, I lost Yusuf, but I didn't lose my mind. And uh, I don't know. I I just decided to close myself in, and without even being in 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 contact with with any political level or so. And seeing Yusuf kids, he has a son and a daughter. I thought that maybe I I will make their life more bitter if I can protect them, if I can even protect myself for them. So I start living not just to myself as mm. before. Mm. Start living for them, mm. for my mother. She became very sick after that. She passed away before four months. She couldn't hold in that. She was suffering years and years after losing Yusuf. Mm-hmm. It was in 2000. And when I heard about the bereaved families, the Israeli bereaved families, 
when that religious guy attacked Frankenthal, which his uh, son has been kidnapped and killed. Um, w- when I heard that they want to come to us and to talk to us, I surprised, I shocked, you know. How how come somebody who lost somebody in, in, in the conflict will be able to sit with the enemy? Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter who is right and who is wrong, but how, as a father, because I know what does it mean to lose to lose somebody from your family. Right. So I wanted just, actually not just me, also my mother and my brother, we want to, to, to know what is it? We invite them, they came to our home, and it was the first time that I saw an Israeli crying. Mm. I used I used to see soldiers, I used to see settlers, I used to have this very bad relation by treating me in a very bad behavior, but I never saw the tears of the other side. I never saw the pain of the other side. I saw Ronnie Hershonson who lost two sons, one of them by suicide bomber. Was this one of the Israelis who came to your home? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they are the strong side. I mean, why they care? I mean, they can, they could stay home and don't care because they have their army, their government, their economy, everything. So why? And they came and they start talking against the occupation, start giving us this understanding of our right as Palestinian to have our independent mm. and they start telling that that is if we can use this pain in an in, in an human way together maybe we can protect the other people and maybe mm. we can lead our both nation through nonviolent and rely and I realized that by joining the forum the pain is not disappear. Mm-hmm. It's it, quite a striking idea using using the pain in that way. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't want, you know, I don't want to deal just to deal with my pain. Mm-hmm. I also want to use it mm-hmm. because this is the soul of nonviolent. By using the pain through controlling the reaction of your feeling against your enemy, analyzing this feeling through your mind and getting it out in a very human way. Because first of all, we are human. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to be used. I mean, mm-hmm. the the suffer of my people is more holy than to be used from anybody. And especially from my enemy. So if I'm reacting by violent, I'm giving the occupation the excuse and the reason to to, to make the wall more high, and to put more checkpoint and to be right by killing us. Mm-hmm. So I decide, and my mother and my family, everybody, to be involved and to join the parent circle. And today I feel that I start I start discovering many things. I start discovering the fear of the other side. Right. I start realizing why we don't want to recognize each other because we are afraid mm-hmm. because we cannot deal with daily suffer because the Jewish cannot deal with the history of the Holocaust and so and so because the Palestinian cannot deal with the daily occupation life and the life doesn't become better but it became possible your life 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. I'll let you rest for a minute. Um, so, Roby, it was your your son David died in this um, same crisis conflict. Tell tell me about him. You know, I was thinking and I was listening to Ali and every time I listen to him, I discover more. Mm. You know, I didn't ever hear the story of him going as a child to visit his mother. And I learn more and more about Yosef as the time goes by because in the retelling of a violent death, there's another stage which starts when you start not to talk about how the person died the violence of that, but you start to talk about who they were. Hmm. And the interesting thing about David was that I really never, um, how can I put this? I wasn't involved so much with the physical way of how he died. I didn't want to go like other parents to the place where he died to hear the details. I couldn't, I didn't want to see him. You know, um, I wanted to remember who he was. Mm -hmm. And yesterday I was talking about him. And I remembered silly things like, you know, he used to play the French horn and he used to practice in a cupboard because he could um, get the best tone out of his out of his French horn, and he used to sit there like for six hours in his underpants <laughs> because it was very hot in Israel. You know? right. And I remembered how we used to go on a Saturday morning. All these things yesterday came up for me. We used to go and wash dogs at the Humane Society because <laughs> we all love animals in my family. Mm-hmm. And I remember we used to make them look very fancy so that we could sell them <laughs> to families and find them new homes. And um, I remember the days of the student uprising, how he used to um, come and and talk to me at 2 o'clock in the morning. When was that? At the Tel Aviv University. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I'm terrible at dates. Not that long, I mean, not long before he was killed. Mm -hmm. There was an uprising of the students about the student fair, you know, how much money fees, how much they had to pay. And... Um, he was very much a leader in this whole uprising and he was in jail about five times which was very sort of quite proud of that (laughs) and um, I remember him coming home at two o'clock in the morning and asking me what was the best way he could get people to take notice of and we thought of all kinds of wicked plans for the students, and he stood at the demonstration and burnt his um, salary slip. You know, he was teaching philosophy at the university as well. Mm -hmm. So those are the wonderful things about this child who was this very beautiful man. He was six feet two and very good-looking. But he also was very good-looking from inside. Hmm. You know, I mean, don't think that he wasn't a saint, you know. He liked to uh, drink and have fun and do all the things. Thank goodness, you know. So he was a very well-rounded person. But he was teaching philosophy to kids who were um, potential social leaders. And he taught them 
you know, I see his legacy through these kids who still write to me. Hmm. It's four years now since David died. And every year they have a bicycle ride. Um, he used to ride his bicycle, like, for miles and miles and miles. It was part of the fun that he liked. And, you know, he left within them a kind of legacy of Bob Dylan <laughs> and of how to cook mm. and uh, about Spinoza and Aristotle and... I'm so happy, you know, in many ways, I, I always said that you bring up a child, you know, with your own values and you teach them things about music and art and literature and and then they teach you mm. because he went on and knew much more about music than I know and probably a lot more, much more about philosophy for sure. Mm -hmm. No, I'm not sure about the cooking, but, <laughs> you know, and... I think that the most poignant message that I can say about that is that I have no unfinished business with David. You know, it isn't the last thing we said to each other was, I love you. Mm. And I, if ever I talk to parents or to children, I say, make peace with your parents because you never know. Mm -hmm. And I know that there was one father whose son was killed in the same incident as David was killed, and he hadn't spoken to his son for two years. Mm. And I think that that must be the most terrible thing. That's hard to live to with. go on with that mm -hmm. with that pain. And they were killed by a sniper, a sniper, yes. a Palestinian sniper, and they were. He was in the army at that point. David was a student at Tel Aviv University, but like all Israeli kids. Mm -hmm. He was called up to go to reserves. And that was very hard for him because he was part of the peace movement and he was part of the officers who didn't want to serve in the occupied territories. And he came to talk to me about that and it was very hard for me to give him any advice because I didn't want him to go at all. I had a very strange feeling about this reserve duty mm -hmm. and I didn't want him to serve in the occupied territories. It was actually the first time that he had to do that in reserves. And he said that if he didn't go, what would happen to his students who actually were going to be inducted into the army and what kind of an example would mm -hmm. he be? And if he didn't go, he would let down his soldiers because he was the officer. And if he did go, he would treat people with dignity and so would his soldiers. And yesterday I told the story as well of about a month ago I was in Tel Aviv and I went to a meeting and there was a Palestinian man there and he said to me, you know, after I told him who I was, he said, um, a day before the incident at this checkpoint, he came through the checkpoint and this beautiful soldier said to him, look, you know, I'm so sorry that I have to do this to you. And... Um, but it's my duty. It's like having to pay income tax. <laughs> and so as the time goes by, you learn more and more about your child. Mm. And um, I recognized right from the beginning that the sniper didn't kill David because he was David. I mean, there was no way, if he'd known him, that he could have done such a thing. And I recognized that he killed him because he was symbolic of an occupying army. Right. 
and that's a very strange you know the minute the army actually came to talk to me the first thing I said to them was you may not kill anybody in the name of my child and I really don't know where that came from I mean it wasn't that I was compass or thinking it just came out of somewhere very deep inside of me how did how did they react to that hearing you say that I have no idea I have no idea. I said this to the army. You know, the army send Mm -hmm. a whole lot of people to come and tell you. Mm -hmm. And it's the most horrifying um, seeing them standing at the door because they don't have to tell you anything. They actually came to my office in Tel Aviv. I woke up on the Sunday morning with this very strange premonition because David had phoned me the day before. And, you know, he never, ever told me about what he was doing but this is the first time he said we're in this terrible place and we like sitting ducks hmm. and I I started cleaning I'm a terrible housewife but I just cleaned my whole house you know out of this sense of of fear I don't know and I got up very early on the Sunday morning and went to work and behaved like a lunatic you know it was my office so mm-hmm. And after the army had been to my office, I I couldn't work there anymore. I had to move my office. Because every time somebody knocked on the door, it just did this whole deja vu feeling. So I had a PR office, and I worked with all the good things in life, you know, like the History Channel, the Geo- National Geographic, champagne, food, books. Okay. And... Uh, I also did a lot of work with coexistence projects. That wasn't something new for me. This I'd done all my life since a little girl in South Africa. Right. And but the priority level is very different after you lose a child. Mm-hmm. You know, some parents just choose to die with their children. It's almost a conscious decision to remain alive and mm-hmm. to have a passion. And, and, yeah, no, go on. So, sitting in meetings was so absurd. You know, I couldn't. The meetings relate. you'd sat in before. Meetings that, mm-hmm. that before all my creativity was involved in how could I promote some champagne or something. And, and you know, and, and had no meaning anymore because the priorities were totally different. And I saw that the Arab Jewish Youth Orchestra that I was working with was what I wanted to do and Mm. uh, the Peace Child that I was working had some meaning for me and then the same man that came to talk to Ali came to my house and spoke to me about the parent circle Mm -hmm. and I wasn't sure because I had a feeling after David was killed that I wouldn't mix with other bereaved parents that didn't seem to me to be who I was you know Really? And I thought that I would always maintain my good, good, good girlfriends and male friends, mm-hmm. and that wouldn't be a direction that I would seek solace in the company of other bereaved parents. Mm-hmm. But I suddenly discovered that it was so much easier because they understood. And because I could be exactly who I was and they were not giving me advice, you know, or telling me to be strong, Mm -hmm. which is one of the most annoying 
things that people can say to you because you have this distinct feeling that I'd like to punch them to show them how strong I am. <laughs> you know, and yeah. it's not... And you have to understand that it isn't because people are bad. I mean, people crossed the road when they saw me coming because they didn't know what to say to me. And I mean, I may be a bereaved mother, but I'm actually not blind. And, but I understand where that comes from. It's the fear of not knowing what to say. And um, one bereaved father came to see me during the week of Shiva, which is the Jewish tradition. And he said to me, you know, Robbie, um, I'm warning you that many people will not come near you because they think it's contagious. Mm. And actually that wasn't true because I recognized that the reason they did that was that he was so angry that it was impossible to go anywhere near him. Mm. You know, he mm. had a causes belly right. against the army. Right. And in the beginning, everybody wanted to help him. But like other causes, or most causes in the world, people are very fired up for five minutes, but they can't stay on that path unless it becomes so much part of who you are. Mm -hmm. And slowly, slowly, they disappeared from his life. I do recognize that I still love my very good friends very much, but we don't have the same rapport as we did before. Mm. We don't have the same... Um, the same list of priorities, you know. So after Itzhak came to see me, he said, why don't you so come... Itzhak Franken told the founder. Mm -hmm. He said, why don't you come to a seminar? And it was actually rather soon after David. This was in October, and David was killed in March. And I said, okay. And it was very, very fragile. You know, I went to the seminar, and I sat there, and I found it extraordinary. And I looked into the eyes of the Palestinian mothers and I really recognized that we had the same pain. Mm. You see, when you become a bereaved mother, you actually recognize other mothers rather easily. Mm. Yesterday in the seminar, um, there was a woman who stood up to ask a question from Linda Beale. And she said, how do you feel as a mother having lost a child? And I knew immediately that she was a bereaved mother. You know, it was Linda so Beale. obvious. <clears throat> Linda Beale lost her daughter in South yes. Africa. Mm -hmm. And uh, she was an African-American woman who was standing in the audience. And I looked at her, and I went to talk to her afterwards, and I knew. And she told me that her son had died in a drug, drug incident. So I looked at all of this, and I still wasn't really very sure, because I really thought the best way to cope with... Losing a child is to try to get on, you know, stiff up a little, go on with your life and your work. And I couldn't bear it. And just one Thursday night I came home from the office and I said to myself, that's it. I can't do this anymore. I don't know. Somebody will look after me. I'll be able to, you know, survive financially. And I'm going to do the things that I think are important. And then I started to work with the parents circle. And I discovered that, in a way, that's what made me get up in the morning. Mm. Because I thought that I could do something that would prevent other families from experiencing this pain, both Israeli and Palestinian. And that through the framework of the parent circle, I could probably be more effective than in any other um, organization. It was easy for me to go and work for any foundation. But this was the group that I thought would probably have the most be the most effective 
because we shared something that was so deep that the way that we can talk to each other almost immediately could take years in other dialogue groups. It's the shared pain that allows you to open to another place completely. And um, so I started to work in schools. We do a lot of lectures in schools to 17-year-olds, both on the Palestinian and Israeli side. And we go in a Palestinian and an Israeli together. And actually, for me, that's a legacy with David because education was his home. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I sit in a classroom and I feel him sort of around me, mm-hmm. you know, laughing because I was such a dreadful student and was so wild and naughty. <laughs> I couldn't imagine myself going into schools, you know, and suddenly in the pedagogic role of, right. you know. And, uh, but that's... That's my way, in a way, of commemorating who he was. And then about a year ago, um, a year and a half, they caught the sniper who killed David. And that's the real test of your integrity, you know, because up till then, I said many words about reconciliation. I didn't talk much about forgiving because it really wasn't in the lexicon of what was going on because I didn't see the need to forgive Palestinians for a sniper who killed David because they didn't kill him. Right. You know, it wasn't something... um, I didn't have a hate for anybody. I don't hate anybody. Or I might dislike an individual, but... There was no hate for a group of human beings who had nothing to do with the death of David. I could differentiate. But I hadn't thought... I tried not very much to think about the sniper because I kept saying that if he came down off that mountain and he knew who David was and he understood this beautiful, loving man, he could never have killed him. You know, and that I understood right away that the biggest problem that we have as two nations, is that we don't know each other. Right. All we know is the stigma created by the media. You know, and that's really the basis of all the work that we're doing is to take away this whole stigma, to, to take away the demonization, which is fed eagerly by all media around us who feed off um, extremes. You know, it's much more sexy to have an extremist screaming at the top of a mountain of a, about a greater Israel or to have the mother of a suicide bomber saying she's proud to have given her child. Right, right. But I can tell you that all of these mothers who've lost children, I don't care what they say to the media. I know what happens to them at night when they go to bed. We all share the same pain. So I knew that, you know, and, and then came along, they caught the sniper. And the army came to see me, you know, the army come to announce all of these things. And I said, look, I, I'd like to meet the, snap, the sniper. That was the first thing I said to them, and they looked totally mm. amazed. But there is sometimes an attitude towards bereaved mothers that, you know, they're a bit cuckoo, you know, but <laughs> we have to respect them because they lost children, so it's okay for them to say outrageous things. 
I can't say that I don't use that occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> Have um, you met the sniper? Not yet. So I didn't really know what to do because it's a major test. It's not, you know, between words and what you do. There's this huge gap of who am I really and, you know, what is my understanding and do I actually want to still remain the victim of this man because all the time that they are that you are angry or full of revenge or whatever it is, the person who perpetrated the crime, you are that person's victim, you know. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be anybody's mm -hmm. victim. It took me a good couple of months and many nights of wandering around thinking about what to do. And I just sat down and I wrote a letter to the family. And actually... After I wrote the letter, it was like somebody took this huge stone off my heart because it was knowing that I, I have a sense of integrity about who I am and what I'm doing and releasing myself from some kind of hold. Mm -hmm. But that you didn't even know you were still in. I didn't know. You didn't know that that, that, that could be released, it sounds like, no. until you had written No, I didn't letter. realize that that would happen. And then I gave the letter to Ali and to Nadwa, the two people that I really... I'm planning on adopting Ali. <laughs> <laughs> um, so they could take it back to the palace, to the family. To the family, mm -hmm. and um, which they did. And I think that, firstly, this was an opportunity to understand the cycle of violence because when they first came to visit the parents in Silwad which is a village near Ramallah they recognized that this is a very poor family they don't belong to any um, terrorist group or anything this was a pure act of revenge of a young man who'd seen his uncle very violently killed when he was a small child and who lost two, two uncles in the Second Intifada. So his way of dealing with that pain, where would he put that pain? He didn't have anybody, you know, to consult. So he took that anger and that pain and he killed ten people mm. in a sense of revenge. Mm. And, of course, there isn't any revenge. So now he will have to be probably for the rest of his life in jail. And uh, Ali and Nad were then told the family about the parents' circle and told them the, um, their personal story and then told them about David and about me and then read them the letter mm. in Arabic, which mm. we translated into Arabic. And, of course, you know, I... I understand the rippling effect of forgiving and of reconciliation. It isn't only for me, because that sense of forgiving has a way of spreading. And they said that they want to write me a letter. Now, you know, we all tend to want some instant gratification. Let's have instant reconciliation, coffee, 
and instant peace and instant everything. Me being one of the main offenders, because I'm not a very patient person, mm -hmm. and if there's anything that I'm learning in my ancient ripe old age, is is this understanding that you can't, you know, things have a cultural timing as well as a timing from the heart. And Ali is more impatient than I am to get the letter. But <laughs> so you, ha you don't have the letter yet. The second time that Ali went to visit the family, he phoned me and he said, Robbie, what am I going to do? I want the letter now. And, da -da -da -da. and I said, Ali, you've got to wait. And okay. I can't believe that, you know, the boot is on the other foot. And that is, and don't think that it isn't frightening for me, the next step. Of course it is. You know, I have to be honest. I don't know what will happen when I meet the family, and I don't know how I will cope eventually. That's really the reason that we're sitting in this seminar, is because I had met uh, Dr. Umbright before. This is <coughs> Mark sorry, Umbright. This is a, a seminar that you're attending right now about yes. restorative justice. Right. Mm -hmm. And I had met uh, Dr. Umbright before, who is running the seminar in Israel. And I really trusted the fact that he could mediate. He actually offered to come to Israel to mediate if I would meet the family. And I'm very happy with that because you have to trust the person. You, this isn't something that you go blundering into on your own, even though I thought I could. But I'm understanding more and more that it's very essential to have somebody there to keep it safe. And so we just have to wait. But you see, if I can give any kind of clarity about what we're doing and why we do that, the personal narrative of a human being is the way to create empathy on the other side. We keep talking to groups who have dialogue. Mm -hmm. You know, not the dialogue of hummus and hugging. I'm right. not talking right. about that. Because that happens all over and that never works because it's not truthful. You know, I can hug you in two minutes. We're all very keen on hugging. And we can all sit down and have a lovely meal and I won't tell you the truth about what's really, what my pain is. And you'll never know who I am. So the fact that I can tell you my personal narrative and that Ali can tell you his personal narrative will open up a new vista of history for you because you'll understand why Ali's family are living where they live, where they came from, and the pain that the family have experienced and the pain of the Palestinian. And through that, instead of reading a history book, you'll understand the pain of the Palestinians. And if I tell you about Yaakov Gutemann in our group, um, an Israeli who is a Holocaust survivor from Auschwitz who came to Israel with no family at all as a small child having lost everybody and finding a new life in the kibbutz in Israel and marrying and having a son who was killed mm. and still being able to join our group and be part of this search for reconciliation and to stop the violence. Stop the killing. But you know, you started. <coughs> the, sorry. <coughs> okay. Well, just hang on. I've got to have a glass yeah. of water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks. I don't even know where to go. I'm, I'm fine. This I so big. It. Thank you. It's 
like a monologue. We don't allow you to you even know, ask us it's a all question. Right. I'm said, sorry, it's no, suddenly I recognize that no, we never let you say a No, word. I've been letting you do that. I, I, could be in, I could have controlled it if I wanted to. And we can have so much more on the website. And I, just, I think it's, it's just Thank what you, so you just said. I mean, these narratives make every, whatever we discuss now, this has to be the context for it. So, well, you know, I really thank you. I wanted to tell you, and, I, and if, if we have time, mm-hmm. I will tell you the story of what happened to us now in Nottingham because it's a way to, uh, to um, allow other people to understand how to do a, a dialogue group. Mm-hmm. You know, because there are loads of these groups going on right. that get nowhere. Well, and, you know, what I wanted to say is, are we... You remind me by prison. <laughs> you remind me in a, by a prison. By Why? Having, what happened in prison? Having, this, having a waste paper basket as the gla- holding the glass. <laughs> oh, I didn't see. It. Just oh. <laughs> so is the tape changed? Yes. Yeah, just, you know, I the word... You can start okay. I was just thinking about when we did this terrible radio interview <laughs> where there were 10... 12 radio interviews, one after the other every 10 minutes, for the BBC on a Sunday morning from 7 till 9. And we were sitting there, and Ali said to me, I can't stand this, I've got to go and have a cigarette. <laughs> and I said to him, Ali, you remember when you were in prison and they were torturing you? They didn't ask you if you wanted a, a break. <laughs> yeah. So what if you can you talk learn? to each other like that, it means there's something, you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can we go? Okay, what I was going to say is the word dialogue is really doesn't begin to evoke what you just described, right? I mean, it, it's one of these words that we need that is out there that you are filling with meaning and contributing to. But I actually, you know, I, I wrote down something that, um, that you said, Ali, in another interview, that you, in, you, you have to invent a language, that you're really inventing a new language as, you, as you're on this path together. And I suppose in the forum, you know, all the important, even the word forgiveness, you've used the word forgiveness and it's inadequate. It's also really a Christian word. Well, it isn't a Christian word. It's that you've adopted it and people think that forgiving means turning the other cheek. Right, it's right. And that, and actually there's a whole new interpretation about Mm -hmm. the fact of turning the other cheek, which isn't exactly the old interpretation in the Christian sense. So what what is the new, what is the language? The the language is very simple. The language is the truth. The language is feeling safe enough with the person opposite you to really tell them your innermost feelings. For a Palestinian to say, I cannot stand the sound of Hebrew because it's the language of the occupier. And for us, on the other side, to recognize that when we were kids, we could never listen to German in the home because that was the language of the enemy. And when you recognize... And that's a hard empathy, comparison for you yes, to make. Yes, but, it's, but mm-hmm. it isn't. Because, you see, everything is relative to who you are. I'm not comparing for one minute right. what happened to six million Jews to the fact that Jalal can't stand the sound of, of, uh, of Hebrew. But don't forget, I'm a third-generation South African-born Jewish lady, and my father would not allow anything... German in the family. So what I am saying is the language of being able to have empathy. You see, it could happen with a settler. I started to tell you about personal narratives. 
one of the best ways to you the word dialogue has almost become offensive. I do understand what you're saying. Well, it's just empty. It, it, yeah. It doesn't evoke what you're but talking about. But the thing about. is, if you're sitting in a group, for instance, we were in Nottingham now, Nottingham in England, you know, um, Nottingham, Birmingham, Leeds, Manchester, all those difficult areas where the recent bombers came from. We wanted to go there and talk. And we came to a university in Nottingham, and there were Palestinian, Israeli, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim students. And some of them were in the same class, and they'd never said a word to each other in, since they'd been at the university. I mean, we're not talking about the fact that they were living in Afghanistan. They live in Nottingham, in Great Britain, right? Mm-hmm. And the fear is so great of each other and the dislike without even knowing that they never, even in the same class, would have thought of saying good morning to each other. One of the pluses of our group is that because we are Palestinian and Israeli, Muslim and Jewish students will sponsor events in universities. It's happened here at Georgetown University, Santa Cruz, various other universities in the States. And this is what happened in Nottingham. So we finally got the 150 students in one class. And Ali and I spoke, and it was very powerful because they were so hungry to listen, that, uh, and they didn't want us to go away. Huh. So we went to the cafeteria with the head of the Palestinian student body, the head of the Jewish students, and the Christian uh, leader of the students, and we sat in the cafeteria. And that's the first time they've ever spoken to each other. Much less probably had a meal together. Exactly. And then they said, okay, they want to have a dialogue group. I said, yes, yes, that's all very well. But I'm telling you that for the first five meetings, you've got to promise me that the thing that you will do is to tell your personal story. You come from Gaza. You will tell them where your family originally came from, how you grew up, what it is to be a minority in America now as a Palestinian, how you feel as you walk around the grounds of this university and you will share your pain. And the Jewish students will tell the history of their families. Why did their parents come from Lithuania? Why are they living in London or in Mottingham? Mm. How do they feel as a minority amongst a Christian society? You know... These are things that people don't seem to think about a lot. I know what it is to grow up. I grew up in South Africa. I went to a convent, believe it or not, <laughs> at a boarding school. You know, and I was like, there were two Jewish children in the whole school. Hmm. And I know what it is to be Alison's friend, but her mother said, look, Robbie's very nice, but it's not a good idea to form a very great friendship. So I understand... Um, I'm not saying that it's in all cases. I'm saying there is an awareness of the other, of being not exactly in the, in the majority club. Okay, that's maybe a euphemistic way of saying it. But that's what it is. And these kids said yes. And the main thing is that if they can do that, then they can get to the nitty-gritty of what's really painful for them after they've created some empathy, one for the other. And in, and in the world around them, not just in their own well, exactly. lives. I mean, you know, I know what you're saying. I believe you, and that's actually the premise of this program, is yes. that I ask people to speak in the first person. And whatever we're talking about, if we're talking about cloning or gay marriage or, you know, some of the shows we've had recently, um, I ask people to start with narrative, even if that doesn't make it onto the radio. 
I think a, they should clone a few Mandelas and, uh, <laughs> and <black laughs> so Yeah, that's a good idea. I they didn't think do about that. That would be a very good idea. <laughs> well, we have to make new Mandelas, don't we? New Mandelas yeah. and some a few Gandhis right. and a few Martin Luther right. Kings but, could help the world. But, but I think, actually, where I'm coming to is with this world we inhabit now, this global world, that, that those people have to be work you know those those maybe unknown people working in their immediate area in their neighborhood in their city in their community <clears throat> um what i wanted to say is though when you describe it that way talk about first person narrative and sharing your pain you know that kind of language can sound ineffectual to someone who's not listening carefully to what you say next about what comes out of those encounters so that's what i i want i want you to talk to me about and when people look at the crisis in your land, your lands, um, among Israelis and Palestinians, it's, it's this incredible knot, it's layers of crisis, and it's impossible to imagine how individuals sharing their stories, sharing their pain, could actually make a dent in that larger conflict. So, you know, how do you think about that? Well... If you look at the work that we're doing, you know, we're a small group, but we make a lot of noise. Mm-hmm. That is, for instance, there's this whole thing about there's no one to talk to. You know, and that is one of the most dangerous... And who says that? Oh, you well, mean the on political the both leaders, sides, right? You know, the, tell Israelis us there's no one we, to talk yes, to. Okay. And the thing is that um, that's wonderful, you know, if you think there's no one to talk to. You can sit at home and watch television until the Messiah comes. You know, and but unfortunately, the Messiah doesn't seem to be coming too quickly. So what you know, what to do about that? So when the firstly, we're not a political party, by the way, and Mm -hmm. that is really very, very definite. Of course, we're all political people, but we're not affiliated to anything political, specifically because we want to be not labelled as anything but looking for a human way, and. so we created this telephone line just to see what would right. happen. I heard about that. So this was in 2002. It was yeah, created. Yeah, in October of 2002. And is the idea that people on both sides in Israel and the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, they can pick up the telephone and talk to someone on the other yes. side? You create a box. It's a toll-free line. Mm-hmm. Um, don't for one minute imagine that everybody phones up and says, hello, darling, let's make peace. You know, there's some very vicious conversations, and that's the good thing, because it's the beginning of some kind of conversation with somebody who you thought is your arch enemy. If you heard a settler and a Palestinian screaming at each other for 20 minutes and then giving each other their telephone numbers, you would understand that that's the beginning. It's better than throwing stones. You know, it's suddenly recognizing that there happens to be a human being on the other end of the line. Mm. And there is no such thing, by the way, as selective reconciliation. You can't decide that you'll reconcile with the Palestinians, but you're not willing to talk to the settlers. Okay. So that's part of that whole looking. And, And then you've got to look how to get to a much broader audience. How do you do that? And we were wondering what to do as a group because, you know, there's very often a situation of preaching to the converted, Mm -hmm. which, by the way, is not bad because you can also encourage them to get get busy and do something in their own community and not just agree and nod, and you don't come there as the local entertainment. 
you know, instead of watching television, let's hear a sad story. That's not the motivation. If we come to talk, we want people to take something out of the meeting into their own community and to make a difference there. I don't care if it's about animals or about music or something, but do something instead of just waiting for someone to do it for you or to you. Mm -hmm. So we came up with this idea, was a really big dream, is to have a television series, a fiction drama. Oh. And... uh, it, a lot of it was based on what happened with Roots. Do you remember there mm-hmm. was a series called Roots? Alex yeah. Haley's Roots, yes. Right. right. Which had a huge impact on this country. Yes. Of getting to know the other. So it's that idea. It'll be a fiction drama like this. People watch. I keep telling everybody in America that every time I come here, I watch at least 46 episodes of Law and Order. Oh, okay. Right? It's that idea that you would watch it not because you give a damn one way or the other about the other. What you'd watch it for is because you're really interested in the storyline. Within the storyline, it will be in Hebrew and Arabic, which is already very revolutionary, with Israeli and Palestinian actors in, on prime time. And it, this is happening? This is, hang on, I'll give you the okay, whole. Okay, so okay. What happened is... Very much, and the stories of the parent circle, of people from the parent circle, will be interwoven into mm-hmm. the into the fiction drama, so that at the end there will be a making of, and then people will see that actually, you know, some of this is true, and it's terribly difficult. This whole thing is a nightmare because everybody has to agree, and if I had white hairs before, I've now grown a lot more because it's really, you cannot impose. You know, things that I thought are so soft are seen as very radical by people on the television. Such as? It's, it's such a, it doesn't matter. I, you know, I don't want to go into the details, but the, like the script came and I thought the script was very sort of soft. You know, and the television guy said, look, you, do you want to be right or do you want to succeed? Do you want to shut down the public? Because you see, when you've been working in this work for such a long time, you see both sides in a very different light. Mm-hmm. So then we thought, how are we going to get the money for this wonderful idea of ours? And uh, we actually wrote to USAID and sent a proposal. And um, miracle of miracles, we got <laughs> half the money, which is amazing. And the other half is uh, the television company are paying, not because they're such remarkable people, but because they have to produce good quality programs. And uh, I'm hoping that probably February, January, February of next year, if everybody can agree on the story, will be the first episode. Mm. So, you know, that's getting to a much larger section of the public, together with an exhibition which will be coming here of Palestinian and Israeli artists. It will be at the United Nations and at the World Bank and in SOFA in Chicago and I'm hoping also in Detroit. So, you know, you have to do things on the ground. It's not, you can't just sit around in your little house talking about let's make peace, dear. I I do want to ask you about religion in all of this. Um, We did a program earlier this year where we interviewed um, someone in Israel and uh, also in in. Arab citizen of Israel who lives here now and an Israeli in the West Bank. And um, 
they all said in different ways that part of what went wrong with the Oslo process, and I think this comes back to what you said, Ali, it's just an example of that, is that it bracketed out the religious instincts that are on all sides of the conflicts, e- even when people are not religious, that, that these traditions are so much a part of identities on every side. And, and in doing that, the extreme voices, you know, forced their way into the conversation anyway, uninvited, but the, but the religious instincts kind of on the ground were left out. And I'm curious about how, how you see these, how you see religion, religious instincts and identities. Do they have a role in this, in this work you do in the bereaved families forum, the parent circle, um, and also in how you think about moving forward towards a different future? Well, first of all, I don't think that our conflict is a religious conflict. Mm -hmm. It's a political conflict. It's a conflict about land and identity. I mean, religion is part of the identity, but it's not the basis of of, of the conflict. The other thing is... Religion is the most sensitive thing. So when you want to use the people, you just reach them by the most sensitive issue that they feel. The third thing is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is is the most holy place uh, for for all of for the, everyone uh, for everyone. Right. But w- why Jerusalem became that much surrounded? I think because of the politician, not because of the religious, not because of God. I mean, Al-Aqsa Mosque is there. The mm-hmm. wall for the Jewish is there. The, right. the, the, how do, the, the wall. Yeah. And the church, and it's there. There is many places that got holy places around for many religions. Why they don't have conflict? It's a political conflict. Okay. And if uh, Jerusalem can have a political solution, it will be a solution for religion. But when you see the Palestinian cannot cross to Al-Aqsa Mosque to pray, mm-hmm. what shall they feel? How can they feel? I mean, they can't cross to Hebron, even to Hebron and Abraham Mosque. Most of them cannot cross there because it is surrounded. With all of that, they are not using the religion. I mean, the relation between the Palestinian and Israelis. If God say that you should not have the, this relation, nobody will have it. But all of the all the people know that God will be not happy if you erase a nation, if you occupy a nation. God will not be happy if you using His holy place to cause people suffer. God will not be happy. So, all right, so. If religion is not the problem, when Israelis and Palestinians come together in the groups, in the circles in which you move, is, is religion not an issue? Or is it even, is it something that can be... Firstly, the parents' circle has nothing to do with religion. They are Christians, Muslims. Right, but they bring themselves. And and but they don't bring, religion is not an issue. Mm-hmm. And talking about Oslo, you know, I don't think Oslo had anything to do with religion, if you ask me. 
in my humble opinion, mm-hmm. I think that one of the biggest problems about Oslo was it was certainly a political agreement. Nobody brought any reconciliation process of the people into it. Right. So that, and you cannot say on signing an agreement that let's forget about history. That just doesn't work. And that was one of the premises of Oslo. I don't think, I, I really agree with, with Ali that religion is used very often as an excuse to, uh, but if you look at Israel in general, it's such a secular place. Right. Okay, but all right. Let me just ask the question in a completely different way. Talk mm-hmm. to me about um, how. So, so all of that aside, all of the ideas that are out there about what religion mean, the role religion plays in this crisis. You know, I wonder when I not only when I hear your stories, but when I when I see how much you travel, you are out there presenting all over the place. At the same time, in this period in which you've been involved in this work, the situation has not remained static. I mean, this summer, there was a new war. Um, recently, there was this terrible, tragic bombing in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip, where women and children were killed and apparently just, you know, saying an accident. There seem to be setbacks all the time. I wonder about the resources you bring inwardly to this life you lead now and this work you do and do the, do your religious traditions have a place in that or have you do you have new ideas as you are leading kind of new lives about what those how those traditions what they're really about and what they might be about in your common life does that make sense yes i grew up you know i i Religion has never really played a part in my life. It isn't that I'm not tolerant of other religions. I think it's fine. You know, everybody must do what it is if that creates a better world. Whatever they do to make them feel good or to make others feel good. I don't uh, adhere to any traditions of any religion. Um... But that doesn't mean that I don't appreciate other people whose mm-hmm. religion creates another way for them to live. Mm-hmm. The thing is that, for me personally, I think a lot of what happened in South Africa for me is the great inspiration of the work that I do. And reading... Also kind lives, of morally and spiritually as well. Right. Mm-hmm. Because, you see, I think that what happened in South Africa was a miracle. Regardless of whether today... It's um, 100% rosy. It certainly isn't. But when you think about the alternative, and having grown up and having been in the anti-apartheid world of South Africa, I mean, I never would have believed that blacks and whites would sit together in the same room and look for a way. And I absolutely recognize, I'm not now talking about my own personal path of reconciliation, which is also very much inspired by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, having watched the African mothers and seen what happened to them. So, and their way of finding solace by being able to tell their story and by being able to face the perpetrators of the crime. That's part of it, but the actual miracle that there was not 
total bloodbath in South Africa, I feel this inspires me daily. You know, I'm very inspired by what Gandhi did. Um, my family has very sort of weird connections with Gandhi. I had a cousin who walked with Gandhi from Peter Maritzburg to Johannesburg oh. in the very early days. Mm -hmm. And I have my uncle defended Mandela in the first treason trial. So it's not something, you know, I'm very inspired by that, by the deeds of people, not by books that tell me of the past because it's never been part of who I am. Well, but now that you live in Israel and as you, as you move through the world as it is now, um, I mean, you are Jewish. And do you have any kind of new sense of what that means also spiritually, morally? I don't know, you know, the Jews were supposed to be a light unto nations. Um, well, that light isn't shining very brightly where I come from. I feel very much that the Jews have to have a home. I think that my identity with the Jews is the understanding that there has to be a home. My identity is understanding that the world will never actually um, accept uh, a million Russian Jewish uh, um, people who want to flee their country, or Ethiopians, or the French, for that matter, who are also leaving right. now. There's no place else for them to There's go. There's no place else. You know, I wish it could have been Uganda, maybe, from the point of view that... You know, there may not have been this terrible religious struggle because for me, what I've seen in the name of religion is not what I understand religion is. You know, it's so interesting because there was the big argument in the Presbyterian Church about the, the divestment, which oh. is called in, in uh, England the disinvestment. It's the church. From uh, is leading South it. Africa, which was... well. They want to do divestment with Israel, with the oh, caterpillar right. and what they did. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the idea is um, the not understanding of culture again. You know, um, we were at a lecture and uh, this man said to me, you Israelis, not you, of course, which is really, I like that a lot, said, you Israelis think you're so superior. So I said to him, you know, I really don't think that's only an Israeli problem. I think that's a Western problem. We tend not to understand each other's culture. And so the church decided that they will take a billion dollars from Caterpillar and uh, and this will be their way of pushing the peace process forward. Which Caterpillar, the Presbyterian Church decided to change their portfolio. Okay? And, that, and, and taking on. that money out would... That was their way of something like they did in South Africa with yes. the boycott. Okay. So I said at many platforms at the First Presbyterian Church, both in Chicago and in New York, with great respect, I thought the message of the church was love. If you want to take a billion dollars away from Caterpillar, I'm all for it. But then put it into projects of reconciliation. You know, wouldn't that be the message of the church, which is supposed to be love? Because you see what you're doing is you're taking that, that uh, money away from Caterpillar and you're making a big noise about it. So you will unite the right and the left in Israel right. and they'll call you anti-Semitic. Is that what you want? You see, that's the question of understanding a culture because that's not South Africa.
and supporting work of reconciliation would mean the involvement of people on both sides. Exactly. Because, you see, we keep saying stop taking sides. Please do not be pro-Israel. Please do not be pro-Palestine. Look for a solution. Because if you're pro one of us, you're not helping. And neither of us is going to disappear in a puff of smoke. Mm -hmm. You know, we really are not. Mm-hmm. So what is the point if you're pro-Israeli or pro-Palestinian, you feel very good about yourself, but you're not really helping. You're not even helping the side you're for. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, it's when, when you talk about religion, I think, as I said, religion is, is, should be the most good thing. It's, uh, it's the law for the people to live, like democracy. Look at the people, how do they use the democracy? Democracy is a very good thing, in, in, in somehow. In but theory. When, when, yeah, but, <laughs> right. when, but they are using democracy to reach a very bad things, you know, and to lead a war sometimes by using democracy. And it depends about the people. It's, it's the people. It's not the, it's not the issue. I mean, in the parent circle... Well, Palestinians have the Christian and the Muslims. We have Christian, we have Muslims in the Palestinian side. Israelis have, has the Jewish in the Israeli side. And, here, and the Druze. And yeah, the Druze. And, and here we deal about the religion in a very human way. So why people cannot? Right. What, what, is, yeah. what is happening? You mentioned Gaza. The you know, recent, sometimes, the recent. sometimes I sit with myself. I have this exam every day, not just what's happening in Gaza, even before, even the daily life of myself. Sometimes I've been stopped in the checkpoint for three or four hours. And I'm asking myself, how can I hold in that? How can I still doing that? I mean, it should not be the opposite thing. I mean, in the other side, being having violent or not having violent. Maybe I can stay home and be far from all of this. But there is something pushing you after you know the other side. You cannot, you cannot be, it seems like love. You cannot be in love with somebody. Then after you cut this relation, you cannot hate him. You know, love is love. That's it. We want to reach this point. Not actually by loving each other. We are not putting condition. If you, you don't have to love the Israelis to make peace with them. Mm-hmm. You don't have, I mean, you don't have to forgive. Because when you put this condition, you close yourself even from the small things, which is, could lead you by those sm- small things to reach the big things. And this is what we are doing. And I think when we share each other pain, there is two ways, you know, to deal with the pain. Even to throw it to the other side by joining the violent or to put it in a baggage and to give it to the other side. <laughs> we are giving our partner our pain and asking from them justice. Because I'll, wow. give, I'll, tell, I'll tell you one thing. When somebody kill, when, when, when a Palestinian kill an Israeli, even he suicide himself and he died, or he's wanted, or he's in a prison, or he is somebody searching for him, you know? When the Israeli kill a Palestinian who's running after him, because of this, the Palestinian, part of the Palestinian, are smiling 
when the Israeli died because they don't feel justice. Mm-hmm. But nobody asked himself, why should the Israelis give us justice and remove the occupation until we are not allowing them to understand our right, until we blow and suicide in, in restaurant and so. I mean, it's not if you want to be right, it's very easy. I'm a right. I live under occupation. I have the right to react back and I have the right to join the revolution and so and so. But to be honest, it's very difficult. Nobody wants to be honest. Everybody wants to be right. And this is the problem. Being honest, it means not to give up. Being honest, it means to being a human. And if you consider yourself as a judge, you have to be honest. And if you consider yourself as a democratic country, you have to be honest. And if you consider yourself as a human, you don't have just to feel sorry about the other, but to understand what the other need to live as a human and to give them those needed by understanding their pain and by re- representing your, 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 your pain as a human, to allow them to understand you. And this is the soul of nonviolent. Because of this, we have this special relation between each other. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't become Israelis. <laughs> Robbie will not come Palestinian, you know. Mm-hmm. Both of us are proud with our identity. I mean, I hate identity. I hate this label. I don't... But I'm proud to be a Palestinian. You know, I don't want to give up my identity. But if my identity... I will use it in a bad way. I will give up my humanity. I will give up my life. I will give up my justice. And I don't want, I mean, I want to keep everything by keeping this behavior of being a human. And I don't want to lose everything by losing my humanity Mm -hmm. and using my anger in a violent way. I don't want to damage my case. I'm always telling that. As a Palestinian, we have the most justice case in the world but sometimes we are a very bad lawyer in a very non-justice court with a non-justice judge <coughs> and I cannot kill the judge to have justice okay. I cannot arrest the judge to have justice but I can show the judge that what are you doing to me is damaging you before damaging me by, by, by understanding his anger and it's a mission. It's not a good, you know, it's not, it's not an easy choice by this, this, you know, by this. I don't want to give the judge tools in his hand to kill me more and to put me and to court me and to be right. You know, somebody said that if you want to broke your enemy, make him your friend. My aim is not to broke. My aim to have a friend. And this is the difference. <laughs> so... This question may be completely irrelevant. I do want to ask it. I mean, I want to push you a little bit on this question that Ropi answered a bit, you know, where, where you're, about your moral and spiritual underpinnings. And what I mean by that is, you know, I don't know how religious your family is. You're Muslim, right? Um, how, <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I mean, how do you think... And this is also because I'm trying to help people in this country understand what Islam is, which also means, which people don't understand here, that Muslims can be secular, right? Just like Jews can be secular. Mm-hmm. This, is a, this is not, there's not a, 
a category of that in in this country. You know, can't be secular Christian. You can be, in fact. But so, even if you are not um, deeply devout, I wonder if you can say a little bit about how Islam shapes some of the way you think about this. If you have thought about that, even the the, how, the way you 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 use the word justice, mm. or you say, "I don't need to love the Israelis. I don't need to forgive them." Um, and again, I think those are those are kind of um, that's kind of language that has been informed by Christian by Christian definitions, and it doesn't have to be everybody's way of talking about it. But you know, if you if you understand Islam very well, you can see justice, you can see forgiveness, you can see love, you can see peace, you can see that God sometimes pushed the the people to forgive and to have peace. There is many things in Islam uh, uh, connect to this situation by forgiveness. I'm I'm not a religious. Maybe I'm not the right person for you to ask in the religion. But I believe that we have the the same God. Okay? And people don't have choice to be Muslims or Jewish. They They have been born and their parents, you know, create for them this religion and they became religious or became not religious I I think in Islam the situation is more important than the religion I will give you an example Palestinians are Muslim most of them are Muslims and we have the um, Christian but most of them are Muslims if the Palestinians have peace if the Palestinian live by the same condition as the Israeli live, nobody will talk about religion, believe me. If the Palestinian will be allowed to, to have life, nobody will talk about different religion that stuck the people. And I, I think that, and this is the basis of the conflict again, but I think in Islam, Sometimes people, you know, sometimes religious Jewish telling me that in Islam, there is no peace. In Quran, you should um, fight the Jewish and to kill them. This is the end. You know, somebody said to me that in in, uh, Britain, in London. Really? Yeah. I told him, well, I think he's he's not the good person to talk about Islam, first of all. But I told him, you know what? If our destiny to have war, it doesn't mean this is our day. Let us have peace now. And if it is our destiny to kill each other, nobody can stop it. But today we can stop it. So this is the problem that you decide for tomorrow between you and yourself. Don't decide for tomorrow by using God, by using the religion. Nobody, nobody, God is not uh, anybody of us. We cannot decide and we cannot put ourselves instead of God to decide when we can finish the people's life or when we can say that you are, God will be angry with you or God will love you or it is just that God knows who is good and who is bad. And believe me, all the people, all of us are human. And all the Christian and the Jewish and the Muslims, you know, it's not a new thing, are human. But the problem is people don't deal with forgiveness and peace 
and join it very in, in a very um, um, to move very hardly not because they are not a human not because they don't want to have a religion not because they want to be, to change their religion not because they stuck with their religion just because one thing because they cannot deal with this identity they don't know where to put the anger they cannot they don't know what does it mean to be a Jewish. Mm-hmm. They don't know what, what does it mean to be a Muslim. I mean, being a Muslim, is it, is it mean that I have to convince everybody to be a Muslim and the other one who is not Muslim is a devil? Being a Jewish, is it, does it mean to, 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 to remove all the Palestinians from the West Bank and to throw them out of the border? Is this religion? Is, is, is it God what say? I don't think so. So how to deal with the religion? It's not the religion itself. You understand me? Mm-hmm. I do. I do. I believe you. I'm with you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have to we have to think about finishing. But and there's so much more we could talk about. Um, I want. I mean, we've already talked about so much. I, um, you've done. You're meeting with so many different groups around the country. You've talked about meetings you've had in England. You're here at a conference on restorative justice. Um, I saw that you'd been part of something called September 11th, Ah. Families for for Peaceful peaceful Tomorrows. tomorrows. It's um, families who lost. And there were people there from all over the world, from Afghanistan, from Sudan. I was there. I wasn't there. You were there, yes. Um, I wonder... And you've also you screened the film in Counterpoint, which is how I first found you. And I think we'll, we may have, be able to have some clips from that in this radio hour. You screened that on the in was it in Jerusalem? It's the, been in East Jerusalem, West Jerusalem, Janine, Gaza. Okay, and one of those screenings was the day that the hostilities broke out with Lebanon. Right. I wonder about those kinds of gatherings and you know I wonder if you'd tell me about some of them that have perhaps surprised you or that you know what do you take away from that and what what happens or what's happened in some of those that in has made an impression on you yeah so just these encounters you have with different people all over the world you know it's interesting yesterday at the seminar because it's so fresh in my mind I this woman came to talk to me it's really quite funny because people now know us and we don't know who they are. Yes. You know, I mean, They've you've all been in my kitchen and mm-hmm. my house and, you know, seen me drinking whiskey, but I've stopped smoking. Have you? Yes. Well, She's a big traitor. Okay. <laughs> Actually, when I gave up smoking, I said that at an encounter point showing at in because no, you know, after the film. It's a big part of the film. Sin, yes. <laughs> she left so, me alone. They she leaves you alone. stood up and clapped like in Alcoholics Anonymous. I really... <laughs> <laughs> there, though it's there is that, there's a great moment of the film where you both discuss how yeah. peace would break out immediately if each side had to go to yes. the other side to get their cigarettes. We'll not have peace because she gave up smoking. <laughs> I told you she's a traitor, you know. <laughs> anyway, this lady said that um, she has a friend who is very sort of um, a Jewish friend who is quite orthodox. And rather right-wing, and I don't like using the term right and left-wing because it doesn't mean anything anymore. But um, 
put it this way, has a lot of family who are settlers in the West Bank and um, has not really understood the Palestinian cause up to now. And he saw the film. And on the day, uh, he's working with a Palestinian man in his office. You know, and they'd been quite friendly but never actually spoken politics in any way. They all avoid it. You know, that's a way of avoiding conflict, I suppose. It'll come out one day somewhere. But um, after he'd seen Encounterpoint and after um, and after the, this terrible incident in Gaza... Recently. Uh, he came to the Palestinian in, in the office and said to him, look, you know, I'm really sorry that that happened. Mm. So, you see, for me, that's very inspirational. Because if you can break through some kind of stuck, you know, attitude, and if this man found it within himself to be able to say sorry, this is, if you're asking me about religion, there's something about sorry, which for me is very religious, if you mean it, because I've actually recognized the power of apologies. And that's what happened in South Africa. The minute that you could say, because I've got this mad dream in my head, by the way, of Israel one day being able to say to the refugees, we're sorry for what we did to you, but really mean it. That would open a space for them to negotiate. It doesn't mean that the Israelis are going to go and blow up Tel Aviv University and build a Palestinian village. Mm. But it does mean a recognition. You see, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was also a recognition of crimes. Right. And an admission and an apology. And then you can go into the restitution and, and perhaps reconciliation. And so... I think in an counterpoint there, there was some form of being of allowing this man who felt safe enough to go to the Palestinian and say to him, look, I'm sorry. And it's happened to us. I mean, we see that this film has a universal message because we were in New York for the premiere, Ali and I. And uh, there were about 800 people there at the Tribeca Film Festival. And at the end of the film, they stood up and they clapped for nearly 20 minutes, you mm. know. And that really, um, it was so moving. And on the first screening in Jerusalem, in West Jerusalem at the Cinematheque in the Jerusalem Film Festival, it was exactly the day that the Lebanese um, war, I don't know, tournament I call it actually, because, you know, people back you, either you're pro-green Lebanese or you're pro-blue Israel, and uh, depending on how many people die, you'll be pro that oh. side for the day, and you'll feel very good about yourself, and there'll just be more broken hearts and no winners. I wrote an article about that, mm -hmm. which appeared in Haaretz in English, and I got nearly 100 emails from Lebanon of mm. people who'd read it, because I told you the message works. In any event, at the screening, it was a very difficult screening for me personally, because here we are sitting in this lovely theater, and people are dying in the north and sitting in shelters and in Lebanon. And I stood up and I said, look, you know, this has been a wonderful film, and I'm very glad that you came and that you're all clapping. But think about what's happening outside of this theater. And we were about 60 members from the parent circle who came, Palestinian and Israeli. And all of us stood up, 
in the audience and I said, you have to take this message and work with it. It's not, we're not here to entertain you. It's to just get you to try and understand that you actually can make a difference. It doesn't matter how small. Do you know, a woman came to me yesterday in the seminar and she said, you know, I'm a student and I really want to do something, but I'll have to travel overseas. So I said, why? You live here in, uh, uh, where are we? Milwaukee, in Milwaukee. Wisconsin. Yes. There are enormous problems with crime. There are enormous racial problems here. This is the most wonderful place for you to begin a journey of making a difference in your own community and in yourself because you can't go out and start changing things if you're not willing. Does it have to be in a pink room that you can experience making a difference? And I'm really glad that I said that it wasn't to be clever because she suddenly looked. There were three black women standing next to her at them and they looked at each other and they said, let's meet. And, you know, it's really strange, but it's not that we're two evangelistical people rushing around the world trying to change, you know, like make people belong to a religion. But I think that what we really want to do is to make people understand that they have the potential to change things within themselves and they don't have to be politicians to be able to do that. That's the whole message of what we're doing. And actually, I mean, really all the work that we're doing should be done on the ground in Israel-Palestine. But we also recognize that the fate of Israel and Palestine is connected with what happens in America. And your fate is very much connected with how we settle out our problems in the Middle East. Yes, absolutely. I was going to ask you uh, how you measure success. And I think you just answered that question also. I I mean, Ali, when you think about um, important encounters, some of these places you've been in around the world... I mean, what what do you remember? What's been most memorable or important? First of all, I feel that I'm putting the, the, the people on my chair by through this film. We just want the people to understand what's going there, what's going on there, and what they can do by joining us and supporting us. So this film is... The most important thing, it's not pro any side. It's showing just the reality on the ground. And it's showing and leading the people to understand what is the solution is. And through many things, I could see the change when people see the film. And especially when we have been there talking after the screening, after showing the film, it was... We, we this film is is touch the people you know everybody both Palestine mm-hmm. after every screening the the Israelis go to talk to Ali yeah. and the Palestinians come to talk really? to me really really yeah. I, I wanted and how are, what about the screenings in you said you had done it in Janine and it has yeah. the same effect everywhere even yeah. though we didn't believe it would you know really? the people are thirsty there for peace believe me. You know, I'm living in an area... Every day I have settlers crossing the road. I don't remember that in my village, 14,000 people, somebody has killed a settler. And they can kill settlers every day. People are thirsty for that. We have 150,000 soldiers. Not all of them is killing the Palestinian. 
The majority of the both sides want peace, but the problem is the the price. The politicians are not ready to pay the price for peace. And I return back to the film. I think when you see the people are um, getting more involved through this film in the situation, then they want to do something. You feel this encouragement that mm-hmm. people are care. They care. And they they see that it's a real movement. It's not just having hugs, as mm-hmm. Robbie says. But it's coming up from, <coughs> from it's coming up from beneath rather than exactly from above. Exactly with the people, even with extremes, you know, argue with people, and in, in, after this, the people can see how can we change, how can we succeed to change the other people mind and you know thought by reaching them. And I think this is this is the, the most good way to support media. I'm I'm sorry, I have to say that my opinion is the media is the most biggest enemy for the peace because they are showing the conflict mm-hmm. in a very violent way, and nobody care about the other people who are not being violent. You know, f- few extremes are are leading the, the the situation, and they are leading the media, mm-hmm. which is which is it's a crime for it's, me. It's a crime. Well, I, because I, that's I why in counterpoint showed that. the human factor. Yeah, it's to show the human. It's to show behind all the people who are killed. You know what? I, what is the real human story behind? the death of a Palestinian child or the death of David or the death of an Iraqi family or the death of an, of an American soldier? Where's the human story behind that, which may somehow in the long run with responsibility inspire people to understand the consequences of, of killing? Because, you know, families feel invincible in many ways, especially young men. You know, if you if you sent fifty year olds to war, they would go much more reluctantly, <laughs> because they don't think, you know, they understand that they are um, very vulnerable. But a twenty year old and an eighteen year old, you send him off to war, he believes he's invincible, mm-hmm. and that's the terrible, sad thing. You know, they don't, the generals don't go to get killed, and the politicians don't go to get killed. Mm-hmm. And the suicide kids that go off are not the children of political leaders. Mm-hmm. That is the sad victim, you know, of being victims of of madness. You know, yeah, I I, I have to thank uh, Ronit Avni and uh, Julia Baja and. Uh, did the encounter point and Nahani uh, Ross and all all of them actually I really because you know part of those people who have done films about the conflict they used the peace movement by being pro one side <laughs> and this is what mm. is sometimes it's I feel it's even more much dangerous. Obsessed, you right. know right. even they wrote an article about me they said that in London uh, uh, why an, an Israeli hater seeks for peace? Right, right. Can you can you, you imagine how do they use yes. even even they use us? Right. But but I really don't care. 
I really don't care see, because the is, uh, they will win if they can, if we will allow them to make us angry or to stop what we are doing, they will win. And this is how to insist by all of that, e- even though. I think also one of the, the reasons why we were so willing to open up to Ronit and to to the Encounterpoint crew was that they really, we sensed immediately from the very beginning, I knew that they were making a film to make a difference. They weren't being voyeuristic about, no. you know, and I was very willing to share everything with them because of that. I wouldn't have shared the letter to the Snipers family with any other, I didn't. Mm-hmm. And it's easy enough, you know, I had a PR office, I could easily... Mm-hmm have done what I wanted with that. And that was the last thing I wanted. And I allowed them into the total privacy of my emotions and how I felt because I understood that what they were doing was very different from the normal way that people make films. You know, they didn't have a shopping list. Don't think that it hasn't happened that people have phoned me and said, could we have a a bereaved mother, preferably under the age of 35, who's lost a child in a suicide bombing in the past six months? And you see, the thing is I play along with that because it's very important for me. I don't care how we get the message out because that's the most important thing. But with Ronit, I wanted to share this very intimate thing because I understood that she respected if I said, please, I don't want you to come to the cemetery because that's private and that's nothing to do with anybody else. She respected that. And when I first got the letter and went to this professor to talk to him, when I first wrote the letter or wanted to write the letter, I said, please don't come into the room. I want this to be something private. And that respect is what opened. You saw that we were totally Mm -hmm. at home with them. It It was was like being with family, you know. yes. And and I really, I've seen the impact of this film. It's amazing. I hope that they will get a very wide distribution because everywhere we've gone and shown the trailer, everybody wants the film. And I mean, there are people who've come to see it five and six times. That I can't understand, but they've done it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and if that's what helps, even in America, for people to start talking to each other or looking, you know, for what's similar and not always... What's so different about you? Right. I I have to say that what being with the two of you remind reminds me of, um, and this seems pertinent because we've spoken about South Africa, because you're from South Africa, will be that I did a program with uh, two South Africans, Charles Via Vicencio, who was director of research for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and Pumla Gabota Madikazela, who was on the commission, a white man and a black woman. And this couldn't be in the show, but, you know, what was so striking to me, as much as everything they had to say, was the delight they took in each other. And that they both said to me that when they grew up, you know, Pumla said she would never have imagined that she would have a white person as a friend or want a white person as a friend. And it was that friendship between them and that kind of delight and and, and great surprise at being at this point in life and having... This, and I feel that with the two of you also, and um, I saw it in the film as well. What I also feel is 
It's because we can laugh together. You, you see? can laugh together. Well, it's yes. and we do. And no, we but can... but I don't love her anymore. She don't want to marry me, and she <laughs> gave up smoking. <laughs> and you know, she's doing that. <laughs> but you know, but the other thing that's different with you, and this is serious, is um, you know when you were talking about when you talked about David, and you talked about Yusuf. It's also it's also like they're part of this friendship, and they I are. I think the two of you must. Um, you feel like you know the that loved one of the other. I can see that, and, you know, and you, there must be a grief that you have also that you can't that you didn't know them in life. I will, I will tell you one thing. This is the first time I'm telling that. When I went with Robbie to the place that David has been teaching in the yearly uh, date that he get killed, we went to meet the student there. When I get to the library that David was preparing for the student, a good library, and I saw I, I saw Robbie start crying there. I don't know. It's a strange that feeling that I got at that moment. I have that feeling that David is telling me, "Take care of my mother." <laughs> This is the first time I'm telling that. I never told Robbie that. And I think Yusuf was so happy that Robbie was taking care of me. <laughs> And I really don't feel this identity when I when I feel about David, when I feel about Yusuf. I don't feel that. They just put us by passing away. They put us in this deeply feeling with our humanity and if people appreciate and if politicians appreciate the life as they appreciate the death huh. peace will be possible I think that could be the end unless you want to say something else <laughs> thank you so much I've been looking forward to this for such a long time, and it was everything that I hoped it would be. Wow. Mm. It's amazing, you know, we spend such a lot of time together, but <sighs> I keep discovering things about Ali, you know. And about yourself. Mm-hmm. I don't know this. Because when you were talking earlier on and you said about um, washing clothes together, mm. I could see it. You know. yeah. I've got that kind of imagination. When people talk about things, I can see what they're doing. That's why I like telling stories. That's why radio is a great medium for stories like yes. that because people have the, you get to have the yes. pictures in your head whereas when you see it on a screen... Television, right. just things, That's why I listen to BBC out. Four Radio mm-hmm. all day, all day oh, long. Yeah, I would too. <laughs> do you too? I, I lived in England for a while, and I did. I do. I listen online now. I also like the I, the Archers. No, I was going to say I like radio drama.